happy evacuation day and happy St. Patrick's Day. If we cut through, I'm going to talk more about St. Patrick today than I will about evacuation day uh, as we go through Titus. If we cut through the myth of Patrick of Ireland, we discover that he did not, in fact, banish snakes from Ireland. There were no snakes to begin with there. He did not institute corned beef as the meat of choice on his feast day. He did not even bring Christianity to Ireland. Another guy came before him and attempted to do that. What we find, however, is really more powerful than fiction, honestly. Uh, Every year, almost every year, I read this book. The first time I read this was in 2004. It's called The Celtic Way of Evangelism by a guy named George G. Hunter, How Christianity Can Reach the West Again. This is, uh, out of all the books I've read in my life, this one has probably been one of the 10 most life-changing books uh, to influence the way I think about living for God, on mission. And so, uh, because a lot of what Patrick did to evangelize Ireland would totally work today in a post-Christian culture. And so, I love the story of uh, Patrick and how he did mission. So, here's what I do know. Here's what is fact. He was a citizen of the Roman Empire living in probably Scotland or Great Britain. Or Great Britain. He was captured by Celtic pirates Uh, when he was 16 years old and taken into slavery in Ireland, and he was there for six years as a slave. And uh, and six years in, in the middle of the night, uh, maybe a dream, maybe reality, we don't know exactly, an angel visits him and says, hey, Patrick, there's a boat waiting for you down at the harbor. Get out of here and run to freedom. And so he does. He gets out of uh, his situation of slavery. He runs to this boat. He escapes back to England. Then, so that happens at 22. For the next 26 years, he essentially almost goes off the grid. We only know a couple of things that happen during the next 26 years. But here's one of them. At some point in the 26 years, another angel, an Irish angel, visits him in his sleep and basically says, come back and tell us about Jesus. And so he has kind of a a Macedonian call to come back to Ireland. And so he undergoes some training. He builds a team. He develops a strategy. And at age 48, when most men in the Roman Empire were already dead, they'd already lived past their life expectancy, he goes back to Ireland and begins this unbelievable strategy of evangelizing, sharing the good news of the gospel with the Irish people. And he does this for 28 more years. So he lives to be the ripe old age of almost 80 years old, which is incredible to think about in the the like 5th century AD, this guy living to be that old. And by the time Patrick died, there were 150 clans in Ireland. 30 to 40 of them had been almost completely evangelized. So because of this one guy's mission and strategy, 25% of the people of Ireland came to know Christ. So he started 700 churches in 28 years. He ordained or raised up 1,000 pastors uh, their mission went out and began to re, uh, re-evangelize other parts of the Roman Empire. And, uh, and God did tremendous things through him. Uh, by the time that he died and they laid him in the ground, Ireland was substantially Christian, whereas when he started, it was not Christian at all. And so I love that. Um, and it had a very Celtic flavor. You know, we get the, like the Celtic cross kind of comes from there. And a lot of the... Um, Patrick was fiercely Trinitarian, and you know you hear all the stories about the clover and how he would use the clover to share the gospel and all of those things because Celtic people thought in threes. And, uh, and so he's really strategic and just basically said, what do we have to do to share the gospel with these people in a way that they're going to understand? And whatever he 
uh, could do, uh, he was willing to do. And so the life and mission of Patrick teach us three substantial things that we're going to go over kind of slowly today as we look at Titus. I want to share them with you really quickly, and then we'll walk through them. The first one is uh, this, and there'll be slides up in a minute for this, not yet. The moment of salvation is the start of something, not the end of something. Uh, So often, for me, growing up in the South, there was this high emphasis on being born again. And what you would see a lot of times in churches was when someone was born again, that was kind of like, cool, they got their ticket to heaven, they're good. Uh, But that's not how it works. Like when someone is born again, someone comes to faith in Jesus, someone makes Jesus first in their life, that's the start of something, not the end of something. Second thing we see in Patrick's life and we'll see today is that God doesn't call the qualified. God qualifies the called. And man, that is important because so often we see that we feel like, oh, I don't know enough about the Bible. I haven't been a Christian long enough. I haven't this. I haven't that. God does not call the qualified. God qualifies the called. And whatever he calls us to be and do, he will empower us and give us the gifts and skills we need. And the third thing we'll see today is that grace doesn't just save us from something, but it saves us to something as well. Namely, it saves us to relationship with God, a life of good works, and a sense of mission. We tend to be forgetful about these things. I certainly do. So here, let's jump into Titus 2. Titus 2, 11 through 15. Let me read this, and, uh, and then we'll go through it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke, or encourage strongly and rebuke with all authority that no one disregard you. So last week, uh, in the small groups last week were really fun. We kind of mixed it up talking about the message from last week, Titus 2, 1 through 10. Uh, so the story of Titus, if today is your first day, is this, that Titus is living on the island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. He's been sent there by Paul uh, because there are Christians on Crete, but there aren't biblically qualified pastors on Crete. And so Titus's job is to raise up, train up, identify, and then release uh, godly pastors in every neighborhood on the island of Crete. And so last week, in, the, in chapter 1, he talks a lot about what the traits are of godly pastors. Last week, he talked about this. He says, now, in the church, older men are supposed to be like this. Titus, teach the older men to live like this. Teach the older women to live like this. And he names some traits. And he says, then teach the older women to train to teach the younger women to live like this. And he says, Titus, even though you're a young man, you teach the younger men to live this way. Then teach everybody who has a job to live this way at work. And so he's organizing all that. He's talking about how a Christian is to act, how we're to live out our faith. Now today, in these little five verses, he's going to talk about why we do that. See, right, even though he goes right action to right belief, in truth, right belief always goes before right action. In other words, the the word for right belief is orthodoxy. The word for right practice is orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, right believing, always precedes orthopraxy. We always, as Christians, uh, obey God or live a life of faith or lay down our lives trusting Jesus in response to believing the power of the gospel and what the gospel has made us and called us to be. And so um, 
in the middle of this chaotic island, Crete. Uh, if you go to Southie today, at the very end of the parade, when everybody has like had way too much to drink and are about to enter into all kinds of debauchery and ungodliness, that is the island of Crete. Like At the end of the St. Patrick's Day parade today in South Boston, that is Crete. That is where Titus is planting churches. And that's the scenario that we find ourselves in today. And so in that first verse, verse 11, says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. For Christ followers, everything starts with grace. For people who follow Jesus, everything starts with grace. Uh, I had a youth pastor as a, as a uh, kid, and he would say, grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God giving us what we could never deserve. It's the total opposite of a conversation I had on Friday night with one of the, our boys' friend's mom, where she was saying, you know, I grew up believing that, the, that when, I get, when I stand before God one day, there will be a heavenly scale, and will my good outweigh my bad? And I feel constant anxiety because I know my bad will outweigh my good. That is a message of do. Do good things. Don't do bad things. Hopefully your good will outweigh your bad. The gospel, the good news of grace, says that God has done for us. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And so the Bible says that grace has appeared. Grace has made its epiphany. Just like Jesus, the word becoming flesh, and Jesus, we celebrate Jesus' epiphany at Christmas, his appearing, uh, grace has appeared in our lives. So as Jesus appeared in, was God appearing in human form because of Jesus' death and resurrection, now grace, the opportunity for grace, has appeared it is epiphanied in all of our lives, and we can get something that we could never, ever deserve. And so, as Jesus appeared in the gospel and changed the world forever, grace has appeared in our lives because of his appearing, and it's changed us and our world. God's grace is active, and God's grace is powerful. It sustains in time of need, 2 Corinthians 12 says. It provides strength, says 1 Corinthians 15. It produces thanksgiving and glory to God, 2 Corinthians 4. It affects our conversations, Colossians 4. Grace enables uh, believers to live holy, godly lives, 2 Corinthians 1. Because of grace, everyone can be saved. And that salvation affects everything. It affects everything. But here's the truth. Because of grace, everyone can be saved. But because of grace, everyone is not necessarily saved. And this is the trick. Because most people live under the weight of, man, I could, God could never be pleased with me. I could never do enough. And so they have a view of grace that's actually unbiblically high. They don't understand what grace is. Some people have a view of grace that's unbiblically low that says, oh, God is, gra- God is gracious. He's like a grandpa who's like, half, he's like Santa Claus with Alzheimer's. You know, like everybody's going to get into heaven because he's nice and he gives presents and he's got a bad memory. So he's not going to remember any of this stuff anyhow. And, uh, and most people think that like, oh, we're good. Like, you know, just don't be Hitler or bin Laden and we're all getting in because he's forgetful. He's old. He sits on the throne. He's old. Like, that's a cheap view of grace. Listen, God's grace has appeared. Salvation is available for everyone, but everyone has not received the gospel. Everyone is, in fact, not saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7, and this is one of the most disturbing verses in the Bible to me because I like to think when I walk down the street that most of the people I see are, in fact, followers of Jesus. But Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, 
and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Most people aren't followers of Jesus. Grace, everyone can be saved, but not everyone is saved. And so, Scott, if you'll go to this first slide for me. The truth is that most people, I think, have not rejected the gospel. I don't think most people have heard it clearly. I am um, hanging my hat on this conviction. The problem is not that most of us haven't have rejected the gospel. The problem is most of us haven't heard it clearly. And so just as a reminder today, let me go through this with you. God had a perfect design for everything. The Bible says he made everything and declared it good. And then he made man and woman and declared them good, good. They were very good. They were good squared. They were good times good. It was so great and perfect and nothing was broken. But People entered into brokenness by sin. And the Bible tells us that happened when the couple ate a piece of fruit they weren't supposed to eat. And so it's any time that our heart turns away from God, the Bible says we enter into brokenness through sin and we're separated from God's perfect design. Uh, And it's a sad and lonely way. Mark and I were talking about this just a little bit ago. It seems like when we are separated from God's perfection, we try to trampoline out of that brokenness by pleasure or by relationships, or success, or achievement, or education, or money, or whatever else, but it still ends, us, ends with us feeling broken. And not only are we broken, the world around us is broken. And so we are long ways from God's perfect design. And we even saw this, this like this weekend. It broke my heart to, to wake up and see that in Christchurch, New Zealand, 49, now 50, I guess, people who had no relationship with God, through Christ, had their lives taken from them because of the hate of someone else. We live in a broken world, and the brokenness leaves us with this feeling of, because we know we can't fix it on our own. And so because we can't fix it, God came up with a beautiful plan. He sent his son, Jesus, who died on the cross, who lived sinlessly and died sacrificially and then rose victoriously. We'll celebrate that here in a month. And anyone, the Bible says, who will repent and believe the gospel, the good news, can be made new and be born again and then grow. I was talking with a friend this week, and they were like, man, I don't, I don't think I'm born again. To me, being born again means doing all these weird religious things, and it doesn't mean that. It just means that we've turned from our rights to be sovereign over our own life, and we've said, God, you can have control of me. And the Bible says that when that happens, we become part of God's family. And spiritually, we enter back into the way it was always intended to be. We enter back into God's perfect design. And so everyone, I was uh, having lunch at Bacon Truck the other day with a buddy, uh, not Carson. I felt like I was, I texted him, I was like, I feel like I'm cheating on you, Carson, (laughs) eating somewhere, eating at Bacon Truck Cafe with someone other than you. And so I was drawing this out for a friend of mine. And at the end of the drawing, I said, look, everyone on planet Earth is either on the left side of Jesus or the right side of Jesus, either living in a a new life, having been born again, or living in the middle of brokenness, trying to figure their way out of brokenness. And I asked him, I said, well, where do you think you are? And he said, I know, I'm on the right side. I'm living in the middle of brokenness. And I said, well, what would prevent you from giving your life to Jesus today? And, um, and he said, I just need to think on this a little more. And, and I hope he will. And I hope he comes to follow Jesus. But if he thinks on it until the day before he dies, his thinking on it and intending out of it will not make a change. Only Jesus and the gospel 
can change our hearts and our lives. There's no shortcuts. There's no side entrances. There's no plan Bs for salvation. So verse 12 uh, goes on. It says, training us. The gospel has appeared. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Scott, if you'll go to that second slide. And this is, this is one of the three things that I think are the, not that one, not that one. Can you get back to it? Just pretend Scott's not over there. He's going to find it. It's under that one. You'll get to it. Grace, here's the big idea. Grace saves us, but that is the start of something, not the conclusion of something. It should be right under that. Is it there? Did it disappear? All right. Well, here, I'll tell you. If you want to write this stuff down, if not, we'll post it on social media later. Grace saves us, but that is the start, not the conclusion. Um, Grace saves us, but it doesn't leave us there or act like that's the end of the road. See, this verse says that grace trains us to renounce ungodliness. There it is. There you go. You nailed it. Thanks, man. Grace trains us. Uh, it saves us. It doesn't leave us there or act like that's the end. If God saved us and left us there, that would be like me taking my children to Orlando to Disney World. And we're going to have this great vacation. And we land at the Orlando International Airport. And then Nat and I are like, all right, boys. No one, no one. Hope you have a great week. Good luck. Disney World is a blast. Uh, make your way over there. Uh, get, get your tickets, get your passes, enjoy your week, have a great time. We'll see you back here in seven days. A lot of people think that grace sort of saves us and then God doesn't do much with us. We're kind of free agents after that. That's not how it works at all. A good parent goes on the journey with the children and ensures what's best and makes memories with his or her little ones. God's grace does the same thing. God goes on the journey with us. So Patrick of Ireland was raised in a Christian family. But he totally blew the gospel off for for most of his life. It wasn't until he was enslaved that he was like, you know, there might be something to this. And he began at that point to believe it. The gospel became real to him and started him on a journey that left him forever changed. He was never the same. He was never the same. Even in slavery, he wasn't the same. God would speak to him supernaturally. Patrick risked his life and faith to leave Ireland. Then he risked his life and faith to return to Ireland. He underwent training, left comfort, built a team to evangelize the Celtic people. God's grace started him on a journey of faith that no one, not even he, would have predicted. The next thing that God does after grace and faith, according to 2.12, is for God to train us or to teach us. That idea that God is training us is not like a trainer. Do any of you go to a trainer? Do any of you have a a, a trainer who you see? A couple of you, not many, Uh, me either. I don't want to be trained. I, my, at our last church, my assistant pastor was a trainer, and, uh, you know, he had, like, biceps the size of my thighs, and, uh, and he was like, man, just come to the gym. I'll work you out. I don't want to be worked out by you. I don't want. I know the price you paid to get those arms, and I do not want to pay that price. When the Bible says that God trains us to renounce ungodliness, it does not. Don't picture that. Picture this. This is what it means. It means, like, we trained our boys to walk. And I remember the first time that Noah, I can still, I could paint the room for the day that Noah took his first step. And we like jumped up and, you know, we're doing the jubilation, the Fortnite dance. We're so excited that he took that step. I can remember training them to eat with a fork and a spoon. I can remember training my boys to hit a baseball, not on a tee, like to really hit it. And last night, Natalie was training Noah on how to make lasagna. They made lasagna together last night at a... It's training. It's a parent teaching a kid. The Bible says that God trains us 
like a parent celebrating with and hoping for and teaching a kid. The Bible trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and it, it trains us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives right now. And so uh, our environments and behaviors begin to change as God, like a parent, helps change our thinking and the way we view the world and our believing, which leads to the next big idea. Scott, if you'll go to three. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. This will probably be the biggest idea that comes out of this series because it's so counterintuitive to how most of us, if you didn't grow up in church, this is the total opposite of how most people naturally believed. Um, Now, he does that as we're connected to him, letting his power flow through us. Have you ever plugged your cell phone up to recharge the battery only to find the next morning that the thing was not plugged into the wall? Isn't that the worst? It's the worst. Like, don't you just want to take something and throw it at the wall in that moment? Um, Or, like, you go to, there's been lots of mornings that I've gone to make myself toast in the morning and then forgot to turn the stove on. I come back 10 minutes later and I've got to eat and I'm in a hurry and I've just got bread sitting in there because I forgot to hit start on the stove, or, um, or gone to make coffee and it wasn't plugged up. Listen, our faith is the same way. As we're plugged in to God through his word and through the power of God's spirit living in us, he empowers us to do and be everything that he would call us to do and be. God trains us, empowers us, and changes us as we're plugged into the power of his spirit. So let me ask you, how do you daily stay connected to God? How do you daily remain plugged into God? Maybe maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's reading his word. Maybe it's coming here weekly and trying to talk with these people during the course of the week. Maybe it's something you're reading. Maybe it's a way that you're pushing yourself. The power of the risen Christ enables the believer to obey and live worthy of his or her high calling. So Patrick, again, is a great example of this. He was basically a lukewarm, backslidden teenager. And God calls him to get out of a place. He's got a mediocre faith, but God gets his attention in slavery and even more in the process of calling him to be a missionary. Nothing in that man's story, there's nothing in his story that leads us to believe he was a super Christian. He became a missionary, church planner, strategist, pastor trainer, theologian, and pastor as God empowered him. If you look at Christian history, every hero of Christian history, almost none of them come from a strong religious pedigree. We see this in the Bible. We see it in history with Joan of Arc, St. Francis of Assisi, John Newton, William Wilberforce, Lottie Moon, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jim Elliott, uh, Mother Teresa, and Billy Graham. God calls, equips, empowers, and works through regular people. My brother and I are both pastors. My brother was part of starting a church 17 years ago. Um, I've been in ministry this year for 20 years. And people will say, man, what was your dad like? My dad was an alcoholic. Uh, Everybody thought my brother would grow up to be a truck driver or a pro baseball player, but we all leaned toward the truck driver profession. That just seemed like that was his trajectory. But God called him to be a pastor, and he's a really, really great one. This summer, he'll become Dr. Jason Mangrum, which is so crazy because he was supposed to be a truck driver. But God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. Doesn't, God doesn't call the equipped. God equips uh, those that he calls. Like, that's how this works. And so if you feel small, 
I want you to hear this. If you feel small or inadequate or like you're coming into the faith late in the game without much to offer, congratulations. Congrats. If you feel like you're coming to this thing late in life, congrats. Pat yourself on the back and thank God because you uh, are part of a, an amazing club in Christian history, along with Patrick and Titus and me and uh, millions of other people. You're in a perfect spot for God to work in you, for God to work on you, for God to work for you, and for God to work through you. So then going a little bit deeper into verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-control, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Listen, God is going to call us from some stuff, and he's going to call us to some stuff. If you'll go to the, uh, that last slide, Scott, if you don't care. Grace doesn't just save us from something, but grace also saves us to something as well, namely to relationship with God, to a life of good works, and to a sense of mission. We see this in, pa- in Patrick of Ireland. God saved his soul, but left him on earth to do incredible things through his life. It would have been easy to believe God called him at 48 into retirement. I'm 48. I'm good. I don't really want to do that. I'm done. God, I love you. I'll read the Bible. I'll sing some songs. I'll go to church. I don't, at 48, have any intention to go back to be a missionary to the people who made me a slave. That does not sound like a plan I want any, uh, any part of. And yet, that's exactly what God did. Um, in and through his life. He knew that God saved him from sin, but also to mission. God called him to courage, to mission, to risk, to faith, to holiness, to a spiritual family, and to invite others into that spiritual family. God and grace calls us, the Bible says, from godlessness, from lusts, from lawlessness, from guilt. It calls us from being spiritual orphans, and God and grace calls us to live sensibly, to live righteously, to live in a godly way right now, to live by faith, to wait eagerly for Jesus, to be cleaned up by grace, to belong to God, to do good works. One Christian commentator has observed this. He said, Paul did not leave the Christian faith uh, with a list of duties to perform. He called us to a noble purpose, a higher life. He showed us that it's God's grace, past, present, and future, that strengthens and motivates us to live beyond the call of society, embracing obedience to God. Now, I want to skip down to verse 15 really quickly. At the end of verse 15, it says, Declare these things, exhort, and rebuke with all authority. Don't let anybody anybody disregard you. Don't let anybody blow you off. Titus, as the pastor of pastors, was to do two things. Exhort and rebuke. Exhort and rebuke. And everybody in here is going to need, we're all going to tend towards spiritual amnesia in one area or another. And let me point them out to you real quick. Some of us will tend toward spiritual amnesia and what we have been saved from. We forget what God has saved us from, and we need to be encouraged. So he says, exhort, encourage those people. Some of you need to be reminded that you've been saved, uh, what you've been saved from by the death and resurrection of Jesus. You need to be encouraged, and I love you. You need to be encouraged that you can let go of the weight of self-condemnation. Some of you carry this weight that God is still mad at me or God is disappointed in me or you've got to beat yourself up because Jesus' death did 90% of the work, but you've got to hate yourself that last 10% and beat yourself up and, uh, and tell yourself how you're not quite like God. Uh, 
you need to be reminded that God has saved you from ignorance. That God is, you need to be reminded of how great grace is. You need to be reminded today that grace has totally saved you. You, if that's you, you are not dirty. You are not orphaned. You are not guilty. You are not enslaved. You are not displeasing or frustrating to God. He is none of those things toward you. You've been saved from guilt, from being an orphan, from living under the verdict of God's uh, past guilty sentence before you accepted Christ's work. Be encouraged today. If you tend toward that, be encouraged. Be exhorted to be encouraged. You are free. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Galatians 5.1. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, stand firm. Don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't put that yoke of condemnation back on you. Now, on the second side, some of us need to be rebuked and remember what we've been saved to. Some people tend towards spiritual amnesia on what we've been saved to. And those people, and I can fall in that camp probably more, we need to be reminded of what we've been saved to by the death and resurrection of Jesus. We need to hear that Jesus didn't die and rise from the dead for us to water down grace or for us to presume on God's kindness or to silence the work of the Holy Spirit in us while we live like hell. Today, we, we need to be rebuked to recall the moment of salvation is not the end, but rather the beginning of a lifelong journey of surrender. We are to aggressively put sin to death to live surrendered, to do good works, and to remember we are not our own but have been bought with a price. None of us can be sinless, and yet each of us has ups and downs. That's part of life and faith. However, that, remember the, the drawing of the perfect design and brokenness and the gospel? Living on the left side of Jesus' death and resurrection means that we are no longer self-sovereign. That Jesus is Lord of our life to be a Christian. And so if you're presuming on grace today, be reminded that this passage calls us to live righteously, strategically, and as a people called to belong to a spiritual family. Um, Verse 15 goes on and it says, Declare these things, exhort, rebuke, let no one disregard you. In other words, don't let anyone think around you. Have you ever had to like, be mowing a lawn and you come up on a tree or a stump and you just have to mow around it because you're, I've tried to mow over things before with a lawnmower and that doesn't work well. That's when uh, really loud things happen and the blade gets broken and you get in trouble with mom or grandpa. Like, we're not allowed to just mow around the teaching of God in our life. That's why having God, a godly pastor and people who are encouraging you is so important because our tendency is to want to bypass uncomfortable truths. But God has called us to go through those things. We don't think around God's rebuke. We don't think around God's exhortation or encouragement. We, we don't go around it. We go through it slowly with godly pastors. And so that's really important. That's what this book is all about. So in our church, now the danger there is you get one pastor who's a tyrant. You don't want that. So at our church, if you're thinking about this becoming your church, know that I do most, if not all, of the teaching here right now. But there are three men that I answer to. And I meet with them every two months. And they ask questions. How's your marriage? How are you doing raising your kids? How are you reading the Bible? What's going on in the church? How's the, how are the, how's the money? Is everything happening with integrity? How are groups? Are people coming to faith? Are you sharing the gospel? These guys asked me that question. One day, we will replace those three people with qualified people in our church. But we don't give leadership away quick, too quickly, pastorally, 
because this is so critical. It takes godly people to encourage and rebuke and love. And so one day God's going to raise up those people. Until then, we'll have that from outside. But you should never have a pastor who's just a total lone ranger and not submitted to somebody because being a pastor is calling us to a deeper life in faith with Jesus. And why do we do all of that? Here, let me wrap it up. We do it uh, because of verse 13 and 14. We wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel is our reason. Jesus is our hope. He died to redeem us and purify us. He rose again to empower us. That's the gospel. It transformed Patrick. I mean, it transformed an entire country. It transformed Paul. I mean, it transformed Titus. I mean, it transformed the entire island of Crete. And I believe God wants to transform Boston. I believe God wants to transform Boston. And I believe... um, with all my heart, that God wants to do something unique in this neighborhood. And I believe it probably won't begin with me. But I do believe it could very likely begin with one of you. I remember the first time I came to Boston was in 1993. You could not feel the Spirit of God here. I can't explain that. But I can tell you that I felt that as, as sure as the sun rose in the sky this morning. I came back in 2008, and it felt like God was doing something in this city. It felt like something pushing through the ground. You could, feel, you could see it. You could sense it, but it, there was no fruit on it. It was just there. And then we came back in 2015, and you could feel that it pushed through the dirt. It had, like it, had, it was in bloom, but it, needs, it needed someone to harvest it. And I believe that's where we are today in our city. There's an open door of opportunity God has through prayer and people praying and serving and loving over the decades, I believe God's ready to do something incredible in this city. And it may begin in this neighborhood, and it may begin with you or me. It begins with one prayer, one friend, one bold move. I pray God has saved you and that you recognize that salvation was the start of something. I pray that when you feel ill-equipped and unqualified, you realize that God's call on you will equip you, and his affirmation gives you all the qualification you will ever need. And I pray you are encouraged to see that God has saved you from something when you feel dirty, unloved, orphaned, guilty, or enslaved. And I pray you're rebuked to see that God has saved you to something when you feel presumptuous toward God or sovereign over your own life. Let me pray this. Uh, Can I pray over us this morning before we receive communion, uh, an Irish prayer of blessing that I love? Let me pray. God be with you today and forever. Jesus in you to pardon and tether Spirit be on you and leave you never. In the name of the all-powerful Father, in the name of the all-loving Son, in the name of the all-pervading Spirit, God command all spirits of fear to leave you. God break the power of unforgiven sin in you that you may be as free as the wind and as soft as a sheep's wool and as straight as an arrow and that you may journey into the heart of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, I pray. Amen.